Sentire Media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 6. Here come the Lombards. Last time, we finally saw an end to the Gothic War, and despite some remaining pockets of resistance, Italy could finally look around and take stock of the situation. And the situation was desperate. As well as war, the peninsula had been racked by famine and epidemics. The people of Rome had taken to eating nettles. In the Tuscan mountains, they had started to grind acorns to make flour, and examples of cannibalism had started to be reported, for example in the city of Piacenza. Cities were abandoned and left in ruins. In the Emilia region, for example, almost all of the population moved to the sea, along the few remaining crumbling Roman roads. This was what the Byzantine administrator, the eunuch Narsus, now had to govern. The emperor, Justinian, now asked his governor, who acted as a viceroy, to rebuild. But to do that, he needed money, and there was not much of that going around. So, the only way to raise the needed funds was taxes, and the local population was taxed to the bone. Those who could not pay were put into forced labour, and it did not matter if they were elderly, women or children. Things on the island of Corsica, for example, west of the peninsula, got so bad that they started to sell their own children. Those who could pay instead could actually get out of doing so by bribing the tax collectors. The emperor was not blind to the great difficulty of getting the newly reacquired province of the empire back on track, and indeed, with his Pragmatica Sanzione in 554, he had granted greater independence to the bishops of the peninsula. This was an important development in the continued acquisition of power by the church. This situation dragged on for 12 years, until the Italians had had enough of Narsus. They wrote to the new emperor, Justin II, threatening to rebel. The emperor, who hated Narsus, was quite happy to comply, calling in his place the prefect Longinus. It is at this point that the Lombards come into the picture. The Lombards were of Germanic origin, and like many other similar tribes, they had begun up in Scandinavia, and at some point started to migrate south. Now, when they started out, they actually had a different name. They were called the Winnili, which seems to have meant either eager for battle, or demon dogs, which seems a lot cooler. Anyway, at a certain point, they met up with the Vandals, and that is where the legend of the name comes up. The Vandals adored the Nordic god Wotan, Odin, and asked him for his favour in the coming battle with the Winnili. The god said that he would grant victory to the first contender he saw when he woke up on the day of the battle. Now, the Winnili women were a bit more clever, and they went to Wotan's wife, Freya, and asked for her help. She suggested that on the specified day, 
the women should let down their hair and put it in front of their faces, so it looked as if they had long beards, and then they should go and stand beside their men on the determined day. Wake up, dear! Five more minutes. Don't be late. You have to choose the winner of the battle. Oh, all right. Well, you think a god could sleep in once in a while and wants to? Don't know what the universe has come to nowadays. Look over there. Huh? Who are those warriors with the long beards? So, the Willili became the Langeberte, the long beards in Italian, Longobardi, and Lombards in English, to honor the god who had given them victory. They started the fashion of shaving the backs of their heads and keeping their hair long in the front. Another fashion statement, which was typical of the Lombards, were their white leg warmers, which I suppose, as well as keeping their legs warm, must have looked really fashionable. As they made their way down, they picked up bits and pieces from various different Germanic tribes, and it seems that maybe the Lombards themselves. Were part of Attila the Hun's great horde. This is to say that with all the migrations in Europe from the third century on, the Germanic peoples of Europe tended to mix quite a bit. So it's certain that the Lombards were not exactly the same people ethnically that left Scandinavia originally. The Lombards were a collection of tribal groups called Fara, Fare in the plural, who would band together at times. But mostly do their own thing under their own dukes or commander. What held them together was a common oral history made of legends and chronicles, under which even newcomers could find room. They didn't even start to have kings until about the fifth century. It was one of their later kings, Alduin, who ruled from 545 to 565, that led them. Into the Roman province of Pannonia, an area that covers present-day Western Hungary, Eastern Austria, and parts of the Balkans. It was at this point that our Germanic friends were noticed by the Byzantine Empire and were made federati, allies, and thus were required to send troops to help the war effort against the Goths in Italy, giving some of them their first look at the lands. However, things in Pannonia were getting a little bit crowded, and they soon rubbed up against the subgroups of the Goths called the Gepids, and the rubbing wasn't pretty, because it ended up in a series of armed conflicts. These continued under the next king, Alduin's son Alboin, and finally culminated in the Lombards defeating the Gepids in 567. Alboin. Took two souvenirs from the defeat of the Gepids. One was Rosamunda, the daughter of Cunimund, the defeated king, and he married her for good measure. The other was Cunimund's skull, which he had made into a drinking cup. Talk about starting a marriage on the right foot. This skull is not quite as famous as that of Yorick from Shakespeare. Alas, poor Yorick! I knew him well, etc. But a little down the line, it would cause quite a bit of trouble, if you believe what the Lombard historian Paulus Diaconus wrote around two hundred years later. But we'll come to that. 
Now, the Gepids were out of the way, but they were not the only ones crowding into Pannonia. There were also a lovely bunch of people called the Avars. This time around, the Lombards reached an agreement with the Avars that avoided any conflict. The Lombards would leave Pannonia to the Avars on the condition that if the conquest they were about to undertake didn't go well, they would be allowed to return. So, with this money-back guarantee in his pocket, King Alboin led his people into Italy in the year 568 or possibly 569. Once again, it was more than just an army. Indeed, the soldiers brought with them their family and belongings. Going back to the concept of a multi-ethnic group, this migration included around 20,000 Saxons for a total of between 100 and 150,000 people. They entered Italy in the usual way through the northeastern Alps to the city of Cividale, known in Roman times as Forum Julii, the Forum of Julius Caesar. Alboin then did something that I've been trying to get my children to do without success for many a year, and that is to close the door behind him. He did this by fortifying the position in Cividale, the door to northeastern Italy and assigning the command to his nephew, Gisulf, transforming the commander, the dukes, into the first duke of Italy. From then on, they moved in a disorderly fashion down into the peninsula, avoiding the heavily garrisoned Byzantine positions as they went through the Veneto area, where they took Aquileia, Vicenza and Verona where they set up their first headquarters. Then, they moved towards Lombardy, where they took Milan in 569, and started the siege of Pavia in the same year. As the siege drew on, they proceeded down to the Emilia area, and then into Tuscany. Pavia actually held out until about 572, which really annoyed Alboin, who vowed to kill every last one of the inhabitants. This is where we are asked to believe that a miracle intervened to save them. When the Lombards had finally brought the city to submission, the king mounted his horse and made to enter the city. As he was about to enter, his horse fell, and no matter how much they pushed, pulled, and beat the poor animal, it would not move. So, one of the soldiers suspecting something supernatural, suggested that Alboin recant his oath to slaughter the inhabitants. He did so, and the moment he recanted, his horse rose and he was able to enter the city. In the end, he was true to his word, and the inhabitants were spared. This is an indication that the Lombard conquest wasn't quite as horrific as some sources would have it. Indeed, The Lombards have been called the most barbarian among the barbarians and the conquest as a cruel and bloody thing that spared no one. We have to remember that, like the Goths before them, the Lombards were looking for a new home, not just a place to raid and pillage. So they would have to imagine a future living side by side with the conquered. Having said this, 
I am in no way suggesting that it was a pretty, happy time and it would get worse and worse for the local inhabitants. Anyway, we were in Tuscany and things didn't really go a lot further down than that, although they did conquer Spoleto and Benevento in the centre and south. Now, I keep talking about the king, but the Lombards hadn't actually fully embraced the idea of uniting under a king and were still mostly divided into groups headed by a dukes. As they spread out in Italy, they settled down and became dukes, each doing their own thing and even fighting amongst each other at times. This instability shows up in the fact that King Alboin was assassinated in 572, and this is a juicy story. Probably not true, but worth telling. As usual, don't worry about remembering the names too much. Now, if I didn't manage to send you off to sleep right away, you may remember that Alboin defeated and killed the Gepid king Cunimund, making a drinking cup out of his skull, and married his daughter. Now, our fun-loving Al was in the habit of getting his wife to drink from the cup made with her father's skull. What a chap! Fun and games! Anyway, as you can imagine, the queen, Rosamunda, was not pleased at all. She conspired with one of the king's personal guard, Elmeki, to help her assassinate the king. Elmeki reckoned that they needed the help of a really strong man called Perideo, or Peridius, or something like that. I didn't find an English translation for it. However, Perideo was not having any of it and refused. So, the crafty queen came up with a plan. Perideo had a thing at that time with one of Rosamunda's handmaidens, and one night the queen went into his chamber and lay with him. When the deed was done, he was stuck. He could now either help assassinate the king or be killed for having been with the queen. Quick digression here, it's not the first time you hear these stories about swapping in the darkness business, but, you know, I really wonder, you're not going to notice the difference at all? Anyway, less exciting ideas say that there was a plot to kill the king and that possibly Rosamunda knew about it but her involvement may have been limited to this knowledge. But let's finish up with the juicy gossip. The conspirators were hoping for a smooth transition after the assassination, but the Lombard nobility was not pleased at all, forcing Rosamunda and Elmeki to flee to Ravenna with a good part of the Lombard treasure, where the prefect Longinus gave them asylum. Here it seems that Longinus convinced Rosamunda to do away with Elmeki, possibly in exchange for marrying her. So, the lovely lady, while Elmeki was coming out of the bath one day, offered him a poisoned goblet. He drank, and when he realised he had been poisoned, he forced Rosamunda to drink at sword point, and that was the end of them both. Meanwhile, the Lombards elected a new king, Clef, who was violent and feared by the Italians and Byzantines. He completed the conquest of northern Italy along Via Emilia and taking Piacenza, Reggio, Modena and Mantova, arriving almost at the gates of Ravenna, the imperial capital. 
He also completed the conquest of Tuscany. After only eighteen months of reign, he was killed rather unceremoniously by a slave who he had mistreated. Next time, we'll see what happened after the death of Cleph. Let's just take these last few moments to see what we can take away from this episode. In short, after twelve years of some rubbish administration by the Byzantines, who made a bad job of a bad situation, the Germanic tribes of the Lombards migrated into Italy under their king Alboin in 568. They conquered most of northern Italy, down to Tuscany, and Spoleto and Benevento further south. Alboin was killed and replaced. By Clef, who in turn was assassinated. In all of this, one thing was sure: the Italian peninsula was no longer united under a single authority, and would not be again for over thirteen hundred years. Furthermore, if you consider that today the peninsula is occupied by the Vatican and the Republic of San Marino, as well as the Republic of Italy, you could even go so far as to say. That the peninsula would never be united again. Before we close definitively, I just wanted to say a quick hello to the UCL Italian Society and the Italian Guide, both of which you can find on their Facebook pages. So go and have a look at them. As always, thank you very much for listening. Remember, if you want to make any comments or ask any questions, you can get in touch at hello. At ahistoryofitaly.com, at the same URL ahistoryofitaly.com, you can click through to our Facebook page, or you can have a look at our YouTube channel, where we have our walk around mini docs on Italian cities. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to help support the program, you can donate on the website. And please remember to subscribe, rate, and review the program. Thank you very much again. And until next time, arrivederci. Sentire media. Hey, podcast producers and show hosts! Do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com. That's S-E-N-T-I-R-E Media.com and find out how to submit your show.